It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, it's a pleasure to welcome Michelle Good to the show, whose novel Five Little Indians has been longlisted for the 2020 Giller Prize. First of all, Michelle, it's a pleasure to have you with us. We appreciate you taking the time to join us on the show. Oh, very happy to join you. Thank you. And Michelle, uh, the inside cover of the novel describes the book like this. Taken from their families as small children and confined at a remote church-run residential school, Kenny, Lucy, Clara, Howie, and Maisie are barely out of childhood when they are finally released with no money or support after years of detention. Alone and without skills, support, or family, the teens find their way to the seedy and foreign world of downtown Eastside Vancouver, where they cling together, striving to find a place of safety and belonging in a world that doesn't want them. The paths of the five friends cross and crisscross over the decades as they struggle to overcome or at least forget the trauma they each endured during their years at the mission. With compassion and insight, Five Little Indians chronicles the bonds of friendship between this group of survivors as they help each other to reinvent their lives and ultimately find a way forward. I wanted to to share that with everyone because it does do a good job of describing uh, what uh, Michelle has done with this book. And, um, Michelle, there's a number of things that come to mind uh, and why I introduced it the way I did. So, so first of all, the first thing as I started to read this book uh, th- that got me was when the girls are in their dorm. And, uh, and I'll tell you why that got me, because my own personal history is that my father was taken from his community when he was very young, so he wouldn't have to go to uh, the residential schools, and he's sent to live in the States with relatives. He never did come back to the reserve. He grew up off reserve. But um, ironically, um, when I was looking to start my business on, on the reserve on Six Nations, I was looking for a place to set up an office. And someone said, well, did you try the Woodland Cultural Center? And I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the Woodland Cultural Center. Yes, I am. So for those people that don't know, the Woodland Cultural Center is the old Mohawk Institute, which is the old uh, residential school, which was given back to the community and turned into the Woodland Cultural Center. And there's two parts to it. There is the large building itself where the kids ate, slept, and, and had their dorms, one side for the boys, one side for the girls. And then there's the school portion, which is the museum uh, now set up at the Woodland Cultural Center. So ironically, there was, there was place at the Woodland Cultural Center, and it happened to be inside what, is, what was the girls' dormitory. And I had a business in there for over 10 years. And so it took me right back to that, and I could envision what that looked like from a whole new perspective. So uh, this becomes a very personal uh, encounter, this book, for me. And so I thank you for bringing these stories uh, to this book and for sharing the stories that we, we hear, uh, as, as painful as they are in some places. But 
I understand also that these stories, uh, they came from your mother, I understand. Is that right? Some of them came from my mother. Um, some of them came from my cousins, my aunties, mm. um, my now deceased ex-husband um, mm. from my cohort. Um, mm. Had my mother not married a non-Indigenous man and lost her status in those years, so mm. many years ago, I would have been in a residential school. Mm. And part of me believes that um, consciously or subconsciously, her choice to marry a non-Indigenous man was related to protecting her children. Mm. And um, I, I am, uh, you know, I, I wanted to have something that, that you remarked on earlier about your father being uh, taken down to the States so that he didn't have to go. There is a character in the book, as you know, mm -hmm. uh, where that whole, well, two characters actually, where children were hidden away or, or taken to the States so that they didn't have to go. And, mm -hmm. you know, the extreme lengths that um, our relatives had to um, go to knowing what those children were going to face when they went to the schools. And I, I wanted that aspect to be represented as well. Yeah, it, 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 it of course, uh, it, it is part of that story. And um, um, the other thing is that I, I, I'm wondering, you heard these stories, as you say, from your mother, from your uh, from relatives, etc., over time. And why did you feel compelled to to put this book together? Well, you know, a lot of these stories are are not exactly stories that I've been told by you know my family and others. It is you know my creation, so to sure. speak, from mm -hmm. what I understand about these schools, but. Mm -hmm. My main motivation in writing this book was my extreme frustration with the Canadian response to the devastation that's been left in the path of the residential school leg legacy. And that response being, why can't they just get over it? And so <laughs> I wanted to create a place where they could, um, you know, a safe space really, where people could go and they could perhaps learn about why, where they could perhaps learn about, you know, the, the, the devastation that is flowing through the generations from that experience and how deeply traumatic it was. And those are things that you just don't get over to be um, tremendously tra traumatized and then just tossed in a world where you don't belong anywhere anymore. Um, so uh, I was just, I have just been so frustrated by that response and that response, not just from, you know, <laughs> people that are opposed to indigenous people on every front, but just mm. people generally, you mm. know, it's history. It's a long time ago. That yeah. whole response, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, very true. And, and, you know, you do a, a really good job of, of, uh, bringing that, uh, uh, in, into the stories so that people can somewhat experience it and 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 see that uh, you know the other thing that that stood out to me is you know we always hear about the children we we know about the children we know about uh, and the and the trauma the children were taken from their families and they were and they were put in the residential schools we, we everybody knows this this side of it and we think of the trauma that that caused the children but you know your book made me think of something I hadn't necessarily wasn't in the front of my mind before. Uh, 
And that is that when one of the kids, and I'm sorry, I don't remember which one it is, um, it's at the front of the book when he escapes and he's on the boat and he gets back. And uh, I think it's his uncle that takes him back to his community to find his mom. Um, which character is that? Is that Howie? No, that's Kenny. Kenny, right. It's Kenny. And, and when, um, when he's walking through the village or the community, um, he's walking up the streets and he notices the empty playgrounds and he, he notices the empty streets and the quietness. And, and it made me realize, yeah, you know, how could I have missed this before? Thinking of, we, we're focused on the, on the residential schools, the kids, but the homes, the families, the, the communities were left without children. They, they were empty. Absolutely. And, and what, and, you know, I did that very intentionally for a couple of reasons. One is to draw attention to the fact of, you know, what harm was done to parents and grandparents. Absolutely. The role, the role of the parent and the grandparent is to bring along the next generation. And mm -hmm. in addition to those children being taken away, that role, the whole meaning of their life in the context of their community was taken away. Yeah. The the second reason that I I you know, specifically wanted to bring this out, and it also comes up in Maisie's story, <clears throat> excuse me, is um, we did not just experience the residential school legacy as individuals. We experienced this collectively as, as communities, as a people. And I think because in non-Indigenous society, there is such an individualistic focus um, culturally and otherwise, politically, socially, and so on, that that's not something that people think about. Mm. And it's a missing link, if you will, in terms of understanding the scope of devastation that was done by that genocidal initiative. Mm -hmm. How difficult was this to write? Oh, it took me nine years to write this. Well, not nine years to write it, but nine years from inception to mm -hmm. um, to getting it out in the world. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it went through many, 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 many drafts and many, mm -hmm. um, so many decisions about what to touch on, what to, to leave to the, to the reader's participation, if you will. Um, but these kids became like my kids. I'm emotionally connected to each of these characters as though they were my children. And so, and that happened very early on in the writing. And so as they were experiencing, you know, their challenges and their suffering, it was very personal. And I, there's a lot of tears in that book, a lot of laughter too, but, and certainly a lot of love, but a lot of tears too, very, very hurtful. Yes, uh, it certainly is, and and you bring that forward, uh, you know, in in a very uh, in a very in a great way is what I'm trying to say, so that people can get a sense of of that experience and what 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 these kids went through, and because the story follows the kids over not only through their their childhood but but through uh, decades of their life and, and actually right up until uh, there is, uh, th there's some settlement uh, made um, uh, for the, the wrong done through the residential school system. Yes. Um, and, you know, the kids, through uh, the, the, a major part of the story, which, is, which makes, of course, perfect sense, is that these kids are 
are very much trapped. They're trapped in the past because the memories they have, the, the good memories they have, are all prior to when they went to school. And then, and, and it's like this big gap, you know, because that's all they have to hang on to in terms of great memories and, and pleasant memories is, is what happened prior to school with their families. Yes, and then, um, and then again, as you were raising earlier, <clears throat> and then they go home mm. in the hope that they'll be able to pick that up, and they yeah. can't. No, because and the relationships have been damaged so profoundly that they just can't. And um, there's there's one scene in Maisie's story where she says, "You just don't get that back. Mm. You know, all that's, that's left right. is this." aching hunger for something yeah. that basically doesn't exist anymore. Please don't go away, because we will be right back with more right here on Element FM, right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. My guest is Michelle Good, and she uh, is an author of Five Little Indians. We're discussing this book. And this novel of Michelle's, Five Little Indians, is one of the books that has been long-listed for the 2020 Giller Prize. Um, Michelle, you just mentioned about how you can't, you know, the kids couldn't go back. But when they, and, and when they did go back, they still had these memories of the past in their minds. They were so excited to go back when they could to meet their relatives, to see their families. But that's when we really also see the impact of what this did to the families because the families are also broken. The families are, are, have changed. The homes are different. They're not the same as they were. Uh, they see the, the, the effects of alcoholism and, and the other uh, you know, detrimental uh, effects that, that took place. And, of course, they've all aged and, and, and they've been damaged. Yes. And, that's, uh, and, and if, you, if you take the leap, I guess, one, one step further, uh, and, you know, we see, of course, and we hear, of course, of the harm to the children themselves and how that impacts them throughout the life, the harm to their parents and grandparents. But if you extrapolate that, then you begin to understand the real challenges faced at, by the community as a whole and how that has uh, impeded the ability of our communities to be whole and healthy and thriving and and true to who we are as people, as mm -hmm. a people. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, so I, I'm really, um, it's so satisfying to hear people um, find it, to see those things in the book and to have it, have it click with them, so to speak, to have it res resonate with them. Um, and, you know, my hope was just that is that people would hear it, they would read it, they would hear it, they would feel it, and they would be inspired to teach themselves further, to reach out, to learn, to read, to understand, and to perhaps open their hearts in a more compassionate way. Uh, you said you said feel, uh, and, and I definitely did uh, feel these the lives uh, of these of these kids, uh, and and felt like I was experiencing it in some ways with them. You know, the other thing that we don't necessarily think about 
um, you know, because we, we look at the big picture when we look back at the at this. And, it, and let's face it, it wasn't that long ago. Um, your story goes right up into, I guess, the 60s and 70s, um, maybe beyond. I, I, I'm not exactly sure of the entire timeline that it covers. But, you know, when, when, uh, when we see the kids coming of age, uh, when they turn 16, and it's time for them to leave the mission, uh, leave the residential school. And, and you know, it's, 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 it's bad enough that these kids were, were, were treated poorly. They weren't loved. They, they, in many cases, didn't get enough food to eat. They were abused. Um, and then they turn 16, and I think they're given maybe a few dollars. They're given some bus tickets and a, and a ticket to get somewhere. And basically, that's it. They're, they're, they're tossed out without compassion, and you're not our responsibility anymore. That's right. And Just like that, you're, you're, you're done. You hear a lot of conversation these days about um, foster children, and I, I mm. think of the foster system as, you know, what the residential school system evolved into was what we see now with the mass apprehension of Indigenous children mm-hmm. into, into foster care. Um, and I, I was a foster child. And mm. I remember turning 18 um, when I was, you know, no longer, <laughs> you know, I, I was tossed out of foster care at that point. And mm. it was the same situation. So I understand that. And it was in Vancouver and it was in the early 70s. Mm. And uh, I know what it's like to, you know, you're just on your own. Nobody at that time was talking about concerns for providing supports for kids that are aging out of, of foster care just as nobody was talking about, you know, concerns for kids aging out of residential schools. And you're, you're on your own. You, you have your own resources to rely on and that's it. And that was another thing that I, that I wanted to, to reflect in the book was how those kids come together, mm-hmm. how they become their own little community and their own little support system because mm-hmm. they're, their peers are the only ones that can understand and yeah. the only ones that, that were, that would provide support. Um, and yeah. yeah. So and they each have their, they each have that history that is shared. So they don't need to say anything. It's understood. It's understood. Exactly. And uh, yeah, exactly. It's understood. Uh, you know, um, the there's there's a number of other things that uh, that do come out of out of the stories, um, and I'm thinking you were talking about some of the the uh, the, the lighter side of things, um, <laughs> and yeah. and you were talking about, you know, I think the the one thing that that uh, was when the the boy travels, I guess, to visit his aunt for the first time, and he's. He's uh he's on a train and then he gets to see real like lights with switches and running water and uh, and all of these kind of things. Then flushing the toilet, right? <laughs> flushing the toilet was a really big thing for him because he'd never seen this before. I burst out laughing at that. That was great. It was, you know. So, but it's true. You know, it's so true. I, I my reserve red pheasant reserve in Saskatchewan. Um, I grew up in in Kitimat until my early teens, and uh, but my reserve is is red pheasant, and we used to go there. This was of course before I ended up in foster care at thirteen, but we used to go visit the res every every summer, and so that would have been you know sort of the mid sixties, 
Mm. And my grandparents didn't have running water then. Mm -hmm. My grandfather mm -hmm. took his truck or even his horse and wagon and went to the well and filled up, uh, you know, barrels mm -hmm. of water and we collected rainwater. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's an experience. And we had, and there was, mm, yeah, there was a electricity later on, but it, when that house was originally built, there certainly wasn't. And so, you know, I wanted to convey, I mean, aside from the, the cuteness of it, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I, I wanted to convey, you know, how everything was so uh, different for Indigenous mm -hmm. people living on yeah. the reserves at that time. Yeah. Um, and, and then going back to uh, one of the stories, when uh, going back to the, the idea of when the, when the kids uh, age out and they're they're sent off, uh, the first and I'm sorry, the first girl's story that we hear about, um, you know, she's sent, she's going to Vancouver and she has no relatives there, and and that's when you hear the line, well, you know, okay, but doesn't look like you have relatives anywhere, and you're not our concern anymore. But it doesn't take long for her to to, but but she doesn't even know, for instance. How to, where to get a bus, how to get a bus, what is she supposed to do? Nobody has given her any, any information on how to interact even with the basics of getting around. And, and, and it doesn't take long for her to get there, even though she does get some help from some people somewhat reluctantly, and, and yet one person is friendly. I think it's the same uh, a story where they actually help her on the bus because she doesn't have the exact change. But again, someone is there and and right away takes advantage of her 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 innocence and and tries to to uh to uh sell her basically tries to sell her yeah without and, her knowing and she just just narrowly gets out of that situation yeah and i i really really wanted to um to to create an understanding i guess or to um to really go into that whole reality, like how the heck can you possibly know how to survive in a city, in a town, anywhere, mm. when you've been living in an institution from mm -hmm. the time that you're six years old? Right. How can yeah. you possibly know? And yeah. to just convey that profound vulnerability that mm -hmm. these children um, experience, you know, that they yep. were just vulnerable and just yep. thrown away, just yep. tossed into you know, the middle of the ocean and told to right. swim. Yeah, and uh, and we see that in, in several instances where that callous behavior towards these kids uh, is is uh, is shown through several situations. Again, I, I think of of when uh, the boy is visiting with his aunt, and the the priest comes to visit the home and says, "Oh, who's this young lad?" And uh, and she says, "Oh, it's my sister's my sister's son." Oh, how old are you? I, I'm six, I think he says. Ah, and the next day, the priest comes back with the RCMP, and even though they're not even in the same province, he they rip the child away from the mother and take him to residential school, and, and just fall back on the fact that well, one, the RCMP says, "How do I know you're even going to take him to school when you get back?" <laughs> and and two, I'm just this is the law. This is the law. Do you want yeah. to go to jail, lady? Right. This is the yeah. Law. yeah. And and I really wanted to um, uh, to have that experience, you know, uh, articulated in the book, because you know we hear about it a little bit, but you know the role of the state combined with the church, okay, that is the mm -hmm. you know 
the RCMP, who were first the Northwest Mounted Police that were, you know, the ones responsible for chasing my relatives, you know, my ancestors across the border because they refused to give up. Um, they, you know, at, at, with the force of law behind them, they took these babies. And mm -hmm. I wanted people to understand that. And I wanted people to, to really think about how would you feel if one day, you know, you're at home with your little child, six years old, and the police come to the door with a priest and say, we're taking your child. There's nothing you can do. And if yeah. you try, you will be punished under the law. Right. Yeah. And, you know, to, to really uh, emphasize that this was not as some highly placed people still say a well-intentioned um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, initiative. It, it mm -hmm. was not. And right. I, I had a conversation with someone the other day and, <clears throat> and they were talking about how the goal of the residential school was assimilation. And I have to say, I don't think the, go the goal of the school was assimilation. I think it was termination. Mm. I think it was annihilation. Mm. because of how the kids were treated when they left the school. There was no mm. effort to integrate them into That's Canadian right. society, to That's assimilate right. them into Canadian society, yep. right? They, they, they brutalized them so that they were vulnerable to the point of, you know, just so extremely vulnerable, and then tossed them away. And yeah. that was not an effort to assimilate. That was an effort to terminate and annihilate. Yeah, that's true. If it had been an, an effort to uh, assimilate, there would have been much more care. There would have been much more education given to them to uh, to to try and incorporate them into the society. Uh, that makes perfect sense altogether. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we're we're running out of time, uh, Michelle. But um, I, I'm just one. You know, the other thing that that's really beautiful in the book that you treat is is uh, I, be I believe it's Kenny's death. Oh. And and you, we see that beautiful. It, it's it's very touching when he you know he wakes up and he sees his mother and and who's been dead and then it's that whole journey he goes through and how he's he, he says you know it, it's just a beautiful. People should read the book to get a sense of everything that you've put forward in in here, uh, the the beauty and the horror of, of it all. Um, and. There is some resolution near the end. Uh, people's lives slowly start to find some... Some they're, they're able to look forward to the future, uh, again, to some degree, as they start to leave this into the past. Yes, and and I, I didn't write this book to horrify people. Mm. Um, and one of the things and, that I wanted to convey was just the, just the amazing strength of these kids. Mm. and the resilience and the determination to to create their own lives and mm -hmm. how some of them are able to better than others, um, like yep. anybody. Um, but there is, you know, with Kenny's death, oh dear, spoiler, <laughs> um, <laughs> there there is a tremendous amount of love um, mm -hmm. that went into the writing of that section yeah. of the book, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, and and you can really it really does come through, um, it really does, um, you know. And as you say, other characters have a problem when they first transition. Uh, they are trying to find a way. They are trying to fit themselves in. But but one particular girl has a real 
issue uh, with leaving it behind and, 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 and punishes herself even more uh, yeah. by actually going out to find someone that will actually punish her and say exactly the things that she was uh, told when she was in the mission and being abused there. Um, and it really does, you know, bring that home about the damage, you know, again, the damage, the deepness of that. Well, the extreme trauma and how I, I believe she she said something about what father made me. Yep. What, you know, what, you know, oh, it was when she was uh, she was arrested and the police leaves her her bag on the bench and she sees it. She's watching it as she goes <clears throat> and everything about her life before the school is in that bag photograph of her mother mm, everything mm -hmm. and and all she's left with is is what the school made her and yeah. that traumatic response that people have to to recreate the trauma to recreate the trauma and you know and it and they're helpless against it without and, and none of them have any side or any uh, type of therapeutic intervention there's nothing for them to to try to heal and right. you know, one of them finds something. Clara finds something. <clears throat> Excuse yeah. me. Um, and that was another thing that I really wanted to communicate was our healing ways. Yes. And um, yeah. So, but yeah. Well, Michelle, you do a wonderful job of bringing these stories forward, and 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 thank you so much for doing so. And I I certainly hope that that uh, a lot of of people read this and that they find the truth that you've brought forward in these, and we all can learn and grow and and uh, and benefit from from the, the stories that you've brought forward to heal this country. Uh, you know, so so uh, Nyao and, and Chimigwech for for doing this. Well, thank you for saying um, it's so so satisfying to see how people are receiving the book and that they are receiving it in just the way that I intended. Um, this is um, I am so thankful for that. I am just so thankful for it. So thank you and thank everybody who has received it in this way. Well, I was going to ask you how it's been received, so I'm very pleased to hear you say that, and I'm glad to hear that you're getting those responses back in, in a positive way, that uh, it is allowing uh, people to, to learn and to grow and to, to help heal uh, all of us uh, as we go forward. So uh, again, thanks so very much for, for joining us on the show. Thanks for the book, and, and thank you for taking the time to join us on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for reaching out. You bet. That's Michelle Good. She's the author of Five Little Indians. Uh, Michelle, where can people get this? At uh, just about anywhere. Uh, all of the independent bookstores um, have it. You can certainly get it online as well at Amazon, and um, yeah, it's it's out there. Yep. Okay, great. Uh, thank you once again. And don't forget the name of the book, Five Little Indians, Michelle Good. Uh, not hard to find online, and uh, you can pick that up and, and get it uh, delivered to yourself or find it in your local bookstore. And as I mentioned, it is one of the books that has been long-listed for the 2020 Giller Prize. Don't go away, because we're going to be right back with uh, more here on Moment of Truth as we talk about Black Lives Matter. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.
Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. We have with us here on the show, Jonathan Shaw. He is a creative writer here at Element FM and also known as the Juice Man on the Block Party. Uh, Andrew Johnson is our station manager here at 106.5 Element FM and also your afternoon drive cruise host Monday to Friday, Julian Taylor. We're here to do a follow-up on our conversation that we had a few months ago on Black Lives Matter and the situations that were unfolding at that time. You know, something uh, both Julian and I were just talking about the other day that came out uh, had to do with, uh, with Donald Trump uh, making an announcement about uh, wanting to uh, teach kids uh, in schools uh, a pro, more pro-American history. Jonathan, when you heard that, what was your first thought? What pro-American history are you referring to? And that's, that's probably the bigger question. Mm-hmm. America has a lot of history, a lot of which he has not addressed, a lot of which happens during his tenure that he doesn't want to address. So what pro-American history is he really affor- you know, talking about? I mean, he wants to make Mer- America great again. Well, it hasn't been great since he's been president. It's, it's actually regressed. So what is he really referring to? Andrew Johnson, when you, uh, when you heard about the comments made uh, uh, from President Trump uh, recently, what, what were your thoughts? Here we go again. It's mm-hmm. the same stuff he's always... I've gotten to a point now where I've stopped listening to what he's saying because it's not for the betterment of that country. When you start to get into a point where you're explaining and getting them at such a young age and talking about it early instead of talking about you know what exactly happened and how we can learn from the mistakes of the past instead of actually educating them you're giving them misinformation it's all going to just come back around it's going to be the same thing that's happened over and over again uh julian taylor what were your thoughts well my grandfather always said you know history isn't something that is completely transparent because can break it down into two words his story and um whoever wrote the history books really controls what happens from now on i'm extremely concerned about his rhetoric i do pay attention to it because i i, I want to understand what the world looks like from that point of view and, and it's completely polarized in the united states and people are hiding behind screens and phones and saying things and really showing their true colors. At the same time, swinging back is a very difficult thing for me to comprehend um, because I feel that my strength is in educating other people as to what my mixed heritage heritage experience has been. Um, For example, when we did the last episode, I got comments about, you know, how people were not aware that, you know, our our parents would have been pulled over in, in a car just because it looked nice by the police. Yeah. And the, the, the value of, um, you know, minorities' lives seems to be um, put on the back burner for power. And that's a very, very, very scary thing. We saw that happen in World War II. We saw it happen in Nazi Germany. It's in, and let's face it, it's happening here and, and it's happening now. Put on the back burner for power. Anybody else want to pick up on that? What, one of the things that, that I've, I've, I've been saying to my friends, um, black 
and white and, and people of color is that we did not invent racism. We didn't do it. Racism means that you are in a, a, a position of power. So when somebody says, oh, that's racist. No, that's not racist. Racism is you're in a position of power. You, when you walk out of your house and you say, well, hey, I'm poor just like everybody else. No, you're poor based on your circumstances. You're poor based on whatever it is you deal with. If a black person is poor or if a black person is not able to make the same headway, keep in mind the world has had a 400 year start. You've been able right. to have 20 to 30 generations. Other communities have not been able to do that. It was okay when we're working for you for free. When we built the country, which you left off a lot of things that happened, right? In, in the history books, my Aunt B is not recognized. My Aunt B is the first immigrant nurse from the West Indies allowed into Canada in 1953. The government um, herself, Donald Moore, Stanley Grizzell, and, and Bromley Armstrong had to go to Ottawa in 1954 and basically say, we are black people. We would like rights in this country. We do not want when, when somebody comes off a plane in this country, and people are going to be crazy when I say this. They used to deny people access to this country because they would see a black person come off the plane and the, and, the, and the person who was the customs officer would say, hey, I don't think you can handle the cold. So, you know, what? hey, you got to go back. And that's the way it was. Forget about the U.S. for a second. That's Canada. We live here. We built this country as well, like, just like anybody else. But we are not afforded the same rights as everybody else. Yeah. I've, got, I've gotten scripts um, before I got to Element that said, we need somebody who, you know, is, is urban. Okay, fine. Okay. They want, basically that means black. So you want a black person. So I do the commercial and guess what happens? They're doing a commercial about black people geared to black people, but every person who's making the decision as to what happens in that commercial does not look like any of us. And then when I read it, they're like, oh, um, can you sound a little bit more street, please? Um, well, I'm not from the street. I don't. Oh, well, you know, you know what I mean? You know, can, can you put a little slang in there? And so why? Well, we want it to sound more street. For who? Because that is the depiction that they get. Right. Stereotype. I've had, had that. I've, and I've had that happen to me as well. That that whole aspect and being voice, a uh, voice talent as well. I've had the, oh yeah, we're looking for urban, re urban always is culture black. You're correct. That's a hundred percent true. And you go into these, you go into these sessions and I've had like, oh, can you sound more island or Caribbean? I'm like, well, mm -hmm. there's very many islands on the Caribbean. And what type of reader are you looking for? They want you to put on they an accent that you know. may not have. Or I don't think they even know what they're looking for, Andrew. They don't mm -hmm. know. No, they, 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 want, they, want the, they want the guy from the 7-Up commercial. Crisp and mm -hmm. clean and caffeine-free. Ha, 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 ha. Come to the islands. That's, that's a Caribbean read to them. Mm -hmm. that, that's <laughs> as much Caribbean of, as you can get. And I don't know what islands that you kind of, And going back to one of the points you said, actually, Jonathan, that kind of rang true, even the fact that like when you're naming your child, you're not using traditional names that are in your, your religion. Like I know in the 80s, it was a big thing to name your child English names so that when they were to try and go for a job, at least you get your foot in the door for an interview. Facts. You couldn't be discriminated, you couldn't be discriminated against on paper. My name is Andrew Lloyd Johnson. 
that name in itself is incredibly British. It was for uh, a number of reasons, but for the most part, it was to make sure that I had an opportunity where others couldn't. Or used another person's address. It, it's uh, the amount of things that mm. had to be done for you to get opportunities, mm. including leaving your country to try and better your family. To or, come trying to, and, or try to get a house. Yeah, well, yeah. Or a loan. Or a loan. Let's or, call it, let's see. Let's look at it that way. A loan. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Well, I'm, I'm going to give you one even even more even more so that that Julian and and Andrew will will totally mm. understand. There, as far as I know, the only black-owned establishment for entertainment in the city where you can let's say house a wedding is the Jamaican Canadian Center. I don't know of any others. Maybe maybe I'm I'm wrong, but I don't I don't know of another black owned banquet hall in the city. I don't know of another black owned establishment where let's say like Julian can let's say bring like three, four hundred people in and have a party. I mean now I know now that we're under COVID you can't do that sort of stuff, but there wasn't that. So anytime we are doing something within our community, we have to go to another establishment where they're making their money. So our dollars, again, leave our community. A dollar leaves the black community within 30 minutes of it being earned. Mm. Think about that for a second. When other communities can recycle that dollar 12, sometimes 13 times, sometimes that dollar stays in their community for all, all 12 weeks before it leaves. Ours stays in it 30 minutes after it's earned. So we just got paid today. Boom. How many, how, I mean, how many black owned establishments did you guys have to, you know, did you pay bills to? Probably zero. <laughs> yeah, it, it's you know a good I mean? point. Like when you, re- it, when it, you really think about it, like, like, again, we got paid today. So, okay, you got to pay this, you got to pay that, you got to pay that. Did you pay a black person today? Like, like, seriously, a black owned establishment? Like, think about that for a second. When you think about where you spend your money, the clothes on your, the clothes on your back, the things that you buy, the food that you eat, is that money being recycled in the black community? No. Let's just keep you over here, right? And, and you deal with your stuff, whatever. But when you decide that you want to stand up for yourself, when you de- want to decide that, hey, that my life matters, my children's life matters, I want my children to have the same education afforded to anybody else in this world. We are then segregated yet again in 2020. I'll take my seat. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, anywhere across the country if you download the Radio Player Canada app. My guests here on Moment of Truth are three employees here at Element FM. We have with us Andrew Johnson, Jonathan Shaw, and Julian Taylor. And uh, they all work in different capacities here at the station. We're doing a follow-up on a a previous uh, uh, segment of Moment of Truth on Black Lives Matter. At that time, uh, we were talking about uh, George Floyd. I guess I'm, what I'm wondering about is, are, how, how do you guys feel since then? What have you seen? What is different? Are you, are you more encouraged? Are you more discouraged? Or has anything changed at all? I'm pretty worried, to be honest. I, I don't mm-hmm. see uh, the world going into, in the right direction at the moment. I see that there are people out there who want it to. And I, I believe that those people are, and their voices um, are really important. I feel that uh, 
leading the leading with those voices and, and having those voices heard and, and not silenced is the most important tool that we have at the moment because we're in a really really crazy uh place in in, in, the, in the history of the human race and, and i i'm i am discouraged i have hope always because i'm an optimistic person but uh people really need to dig deep and really need to uh think about what it is that they really really need in this life and how to treat other people and what other people need in this life there's a saying that goes when you when you search for uh, your happiness your own happiness you will never ever find it but when you want it for someone else you will always find it mm. yeah i know that one that's a good one andrew johnson nothing's changed <laughs> and as uh, as sad as that sounds nothing nothing's changed it's the same way i felt 10 years ago it's the same way yeah people are now it's becoming a little more main mainstream and mainline attention has been brought onto it but nothing has really changed you hear about it now and people feel sad and you get empathy from from other from other people but nothing's changed that's how I feel. It's just, it's going around in a circle. Eventually I hope that it gets to a positive thing because I try to be a positive person, but I am also a realist and nothing is going to change in the next little while. I have a totally different way of looking at it. The more things change, the more things stay the same in the sense that, okay, Rihanna Taylor, mm. they gave the family $12 million and everybody's like, Oh wow. So you got $12 million. That's a lot of money. Well, not really seeing as though there have been other cases where that people of other colors have had wrongful death suits against police and they've gotten $55 million. Mm. The, so, okay, you fire one of, the, uh, one of the police officers. Okay, they're not tried for murder. Right. You have the situation with Blake and he now has to spend the rest of his life in a wheelchair. Mm for breaking up a fight. Think about that right. for a minute. Okay, mm -hmm. but yeah, you wanna bring up his priors. Okay, you wanna bring up this, you wanna bring up that. Okay, but what was he doing at the time when you shot him in the back? He was going in the car, he was taking his children to a birthday party. So mm -hmm. think about that for a second. Your children have to go through the rest of their life knowing that their birthday is the day that their father was paralyzed. That, that means, you imagine, and they saw their father get shot. Right. Think about the children and, and, and what you have done to those children. I have children myself. I have three of them. I've had three of them in the car. I've had a policeman pull me over. And... When that situation ends, I take a minute and I go, thank God. I shouldn't have to do that. Mm. I shouldn't have to, as a father, who my children look at as their first hero. I am my children's superhero. I am the first man that my daughter's ever dated because I took them out and I said, this is how a man is supposed to treat you. Mm. And they're supposed to, you know, look at police or people in power as being, you know, authority. And when they see a policeman or a cop disrespect their father, 
Think about when that starts. Daddy, why was he why was he rude to you? Why did he why was he asking you how you bought your car? You have a job? Like what's his business? Mm. You know what I mean? Other communities don't have to deal with this. And when I say these things, they're like, it's like totally oblivious to them. They are taught the history of the winners of the battle. They are taught the history of the people in power, as Julian said. They are not taught the history of the people who they conquered and what happened to them and how their lives were affected. We hear about the atrocities that are done to people all over the world. And I was watching a comedy special the other day, and they said, do you know the color of the uniforms of the people that, you, that you're fighting against? Can you find their country on a map? No. What happens to them after you blow them up? What happens to their children? What happens to their families? How do they deal with life? How, how is it that it is so hard for you to get along with the people who you brought over here, where five-eighths of them are, are, are now at the Atlantic Ocean, where 600 million people, Africans, died at the hands of slavery? Oh, that wasn't me. Okay, cool. But hey, you know what? Lords of London is still getting claims for slave ships that that sank at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. Think about that for a minute. Yeah. They're still paying claims for ships that carried over people. The United States government is going back to Lords of London for that. Hmm. But, but again, we as people, we as people, all we ask is to be treated fairly, to be able to just go about our business, to have a life, to raise our sons and daughters, to have generational wealth, so to be able to say, hey, you know what? I'm now, you know, I'm now part of the ancestors. Here is something for my children. Yeah, generational wealth is a very important thing. It's incredibly mm -hmm. important. It's incredibly important. But guess what? When you cannot, when you can't get a loan or a mortgage to buy a house, when any time you do something, the cops come up to you and harass you, it gives you this fear of flight. You're actually, a f we're, there, I can't tell you how many black people are actually afraid of success because they believe that if they, if they get that success, they're going to be a target mm -hmm. because there's this other terminology called um, you get rich and switch. Mm -hmm. You're not black. You're not black no more because you know. Hey, you don't. You can't do whatever. You know, like like all these little things are 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 are, are ingrained into us to keep us right where we are because this is where they want us to be. They don't want us to prosper. They don't want us to make money. And it is so easy. Anytime you start seeing certain athletes or entertainers or people start to make money, guess what happens? Media Blitz tries to, tries to bring them back down. We don't even try. I mean, again, it's all about controlling our narrative. There is, there is something uh, happening, David, on, on the 27th where it's um, a walk down Young Street, basically showing men in suits, 
showing the narrative that black people actually can wear suits. Black men actually wear mm. suits, not hoodies, anything else. Mm. But guess what happens? They've now changed the laws. And if we were to go out there in, a, in more than 25 people, those individuals would, would then stand to get a fine. Mm. Right? I understand COVID. I don't understand all that other sort of stuff. I get it, whatever the case may be. But yet again, when Cherry Beach was going on and people were down there in droves, what happened? Nothing. It went on all month. Mm. You know, but now, now all of a sudden, you know, these backyard parties, whatever the case may be, I, I get it. I, I, I'm just saying, be fair. Be fair. Be fair under the law. Just, right. just that's, that's all I ask you for. You know what I mean? Kids, no, kids do it all the time. Kids say, why does Johnny get to do it, but I can't? <laughs> why do I have to tell my children, you got to work twice as hard in school as any other white person? Why do I have to do that? Why do I have to feel that if I get a job somewhere, I'm the token black person? I mean, Julian's probably done mm -hmm. it. Andrew's probably done it. We've been in a room. And we're like, okay, we're the only person of color in here. Okay, let's see if we, oh, there's one. Okay, wait, let me go over there. And we try to, we try to heal that person up. Why? I don't know if you did it, Julian or Andrew, back in the day, but our parents used to put us in the car and they would drive around the city and they'd look for other black people. You remember them days? My parents, <laughs> we, we, we were a part of a church and we, we, we were around black people all the time because my, my grandfather was the pastor of the church. So nice. I didn't, that didn't really happen for, for me um, because our community was really based around that uh, congregation. And for me, it was, so there was a group of people that came from Jamaica that went to Britain, that came to Canada, and my parents were part of this group. And those are where our, because when we moved to Canada, it was just the five of us, and that was it from our family. So mm -hmm. those people became your family. They became your friends. Those before school that was your first friend that was so we had these events and i was around i was fortunate enough to be around black people until you know school and then you're around the majority of different races and cultures and stuff like that um growing up in brampton it was a little um it was a little better than most places especially mm -hmm. in the late 80s early 90s it was it was a lot better than most places but you still had problems you still were followed in the store when you went to go buy something regardless if you were wearing a suit or jogging pants um dressing nice for example to get on a plane instead of being able to wear a hoodie and a t-shirt because you didn't want to get stopped and questioned going across the border those type of things it, it, those things that like you've been ingrained to learn over the years has been passed down that I've passed down to my kids that have been passed down to me, my dad and how to kind of move and operate yourself. And you're right. You do cling. I went to school in a place that was predominantly white and you find and you search for the other black person and you cling to them. We used to have get together. There were five of us in the entire city. So we would get together. Someone's mom cooked. Everyone ate. We took care of each other. We made that small community because of how you felt when you were outside of that culture and outside of that community that was helping you out because you were fearful. My uncle used to live at uh, DuPont and Dufferin. And because, you know, guys would go out and they'd be working and they didn't have cars and, you know, they, they, they were out past 11 o'clock. And they would get harassed by the police. What he would do was he would leave his door open and have men 
sleep in his in his basement. And there's I wish I could find the pictures. There's pictures of of him like walking over people in the basement who were sleeping. And there'd be a lot of people. I mean, yeah, he could have got busted for having too many people in his house, but he did it so that people would not spend that night in jail or be arrested for just walking or carted, which is another problem. Guys, we're almost out of time, and uh, it's been fascinating to listen to all of your stories uh, and hear your insights and, and to do some catching up uh, in, in your lives and also in, in terms of your, your perspective on what is happening, if, if and any changes have, have uh, taken place for you personally and or uh, just on the world, uh, the world scene. As we get closer to uh, you know, an upcoming election in the United States and, and how that m- might play out uh, um, you know, in the next little while for for things changing as well. But I want to, again, say thank you for taking the time to join us on Moment of Truth and to share your thoughts with us here. And, and, to, and we look forward to, uh, you know, having you guys back on again so we can continue the conversation. Well, thank, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And my guests have been Jonathan Shaw. He's a creative writer here at Element FM and also known as the Juice Man on the Block Party. Andrew Johnson is the manager of 106.5 in Toronto. And Julian Taylor is my bud uh, that I share the afternoon uh, with uh, here on Element FM 106.5. Uh, he is the afternoon drive uh, cruise host. And it's been a pleasure for uh, us to share this with you. And we look forward to having you listen each and every day right here on Element FM 1065957 and Moment of Truth. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element, Element FM.